Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and it's my goal to help you upgrade your human performance by guiding you towards improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility and stress management. Work on just one of those and you'll be on the pathway to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. If you're interested in joining me on this journey, please check out my SWOT Inner Circle where you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1. Please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes below. On this week's podcast, my guest is Dr. Kath Bishop, Olympian, former diplomat, business coach and consultant and author of The Long Win, listed in the FT's top 10 business books of 2020. She competed as a rower at three Olympic Games winning World Championship Gold in 2003 and Olympic Silver in Athens 2004. As a diplomat for the British Foreign Office for 12 years, Kath specialised in policy negotiations on conflict issues with postings to both Bosnia and Iraq. She now works as a leadership consultant, executive coach, facilitator and author and teaches on the leadership topics including resilience, high-performing teams, culture change and inclusion. Back in November, I listened to Kath speak about the long win and the concept developed in her book, which really resonated with me. It's similar to my own high performance human approach and focuses on process and mastery rather than outcome. If you're tired of the binary win or lose narrative, which controls so much of life, then you'll love this conversation. In fact, the Financial Times described the book as a deep and rewarding exploration of human motivation in sport, politics, business, and our personal lives. In the conversation today, we discuss some of the following topics. School sport, rowing, and the road to the Olympics. Winning a silver medal at the Olympics, was it pleasure or pain? The diplomatic world is the language of winning the most beneficial approach to international relationships. How the original definitions of sport, competition, and winning have been corrupted over the years. Why Olympic gold medal winners can often feel a sense of loss and emptiness after victory. The bizarre and somewhat disturbing allocation of return flight tickets for Olympic gold medal winners and the rest of the team. Why the winning at all costs attitude can be damaging in the long run. Mastery and process versus outcome goals and being the best you can be. And finally, Cass shares some of the principles of the long win, the three C's and how we can all formulate a different approach going forward. So without further ado, let's crack on with today's guest. Welcome to the show, Kath Bishop. Great to be here, Simon. Thank you. Well, it's uh, we had a warm up chat, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago? Well, a few weeks ago now. It seems like a uh, a long time. And now we're out of lockdown and sort of ex- experiencing a little bit of freedom, which is nice. Slowly, slowly it's coming. Yeah, exactly. And some sunshine around us. I mean, as as an Olympic athlete, you know, I mean, and rowing is one of those where I've seen the uh, documentaries of Redgrave and Pinsent when they're incarcerated in Eastern European training places that are like prison camps and uh, just sort of going out of the room to row and then have something to eat. Um, uh, so as an Olympic athlete, you, you're used to following a strict schedule with restrictions on your lifestyle for many years. As, as, does that mean that something like the lockdowns that we've experienced come easier to you or do you, do you still find it just as hard? 
It's a good question. Um, I definitely felt myself go into training camp mode. Mm. Uh, you know, going into that place where you sort of think, right, you know, how do I get through this? What have I got to do? Uh, what does this enable me to do? What can I spend more time? Actually, I can get on my row machine and that might help me to stay sane. So I think there is a part of you that kind of knuckles down and recognises, you know, the, the long slog um, for sure. And, and I think actually some of my kind of work as a diplomat after that, I was working in some fairly grim and challenging circumstances and military environments where, again, I recognise that sense of, you know, every day is a training day, um, one day at a time, and that's how you get through. Yeah, it's about the process, isn't it? Not the outcome. Just what can I do today just to get through to the next day? Exactly. Yes. Well, let's let's talk about uh, your rowing career then first, because that's sort of um, the basis for your book, The Long Win, which we'll talk about um, throughout this and maybe in a bit more detail at the end. And we will definitely give um, links and uh, everything so that people can get their own copy. In that book, I was interested that you weren't really particularly sporty and you weren't really involved in endurance sports because as a, as a coach in endurance sports of, of working with triathletes, I've always been under the assumption that those are the years you know particularly when you when your sort of body's developing where you need to lay down the aerobic pathways in order to progress to the highest levels as as um sort of as you exit your teens and into your early 20s and so having not laid that down I guess did that make you a genetic freak to be able to pick up rowing at a later date and um and still make it to the highest level I don't know about genetic freak. That's quite a that's quite a strong phrase, isn't it? It I is. Yes. It just shows yeah. that we, I, you know, I think we make a lot of assumptions about we mm. think things have to be done early, and mm. the earlier the better, and the more earlier the better, uh, mm. and that sometimes we have more time available to us than we think mm. and a different perspective could be helpful i was interested reading this weekend about some stuff about how a lot of the gymnasts are managing to keep going longer and even simone biles who's now sort of into her mid-20s saying yes. she's thinking about going to paris mm-hmm. um, and shifting the thinking and you and you sort of question well how did we ever think that wasn't possible if they're now showing it is possible actually sports nutrition sports science in a way helps us to keep going longer but I think there's a bigger phenomenon in society that we are quite anti um, uh, sort of doing things later on. And we, we praise early talent. And we, there's a wonderful mm. book by Rich Cargard called Late Bloomers, who talks about how we cut off people and think, if I haven't reached this point by this time, I'm over the hill. I haven't done this by then. It's too late. But actually, society is full of people who show that's, that's rubbish. Um, you know, but people like J.K. Rowling, who came to writing immensely successful very late on in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a lot of sports examples are also showing that we can thrive at different times. You know, people like Harry Kane, who didn't show up as a, as a really talented okay. youngster yeah. in, in the kind of early days, but talents there. And, you know, I think in my case as well, the, the physiology was there. I hadn't actually trained it to an elite mm. point. But what I did do was actually enable my body to grow without being overly pressured. And one of the challenges with rowing, like with many sports, is there's a lot of loading involved. Um, there's a lot of twisting. There's a lot of, you know, not always a sort of asymmetrical 
pressures being mm. applied and you know I didn't suffer massively from um, injuries and, and I often wonder if that's actually because my body was allowed to grow without having all of this loading put on it until you know after I was 18 mm. um, and and at that point then I had the, the structure if you like the, the kind of body of to, to start training up and of course it takes time but we have incredible training programs we understand physiology so um, you know the, the aerobic pathways can come and you know we certainly do our three three sessions a day two hours a piece in rowing so you know we do a lot pretty quickly to start getting them yeah i suppose particularly you mentioned gymnastics there and swimming as well and particularly swimming for females has always been what the russians used to call an early specialization sport wasn't it and we can all mm. remember people like um olga corbett and comrade who were winning gold medals at 14 and 15 and uh, sharon davis competing in the olympic final at the age of 16 um katie ledecky as well winning gold medal at 15 i think um, and I, I wonder whether the, the reason that those people drop out the sport is that if you've been doing that to get to that level, you know, you still need a, a long amount of time to develop that endurance, whether you start at, in your late teens, whether you start at the age of eight, whether those people are just worn out by the time they get to their twenties, you know, particularly gymnastics, it, the body takes such a toll, doesn't it? Such a, the joints take such a battering and mentally as well, Absolutely. I guess, if you've Absolutely. been doing that for 12 years at that day in, day out, morning, evening, you, you, just you can just get a bit fried with it all and you have to think how many people are we putting off from having a healthy life because Mm. they don't want to go down that route at a really young age yeah um and so for every sharon davis that you know how many others have just sort of said i don't don't want to do that Mm. i mean i i don't think i would have had the maturity to train in that way as a teenager so i feel very fortunate Mm-hmm. that I got into rowing a university. And at that point, when I was then given the option, you've got the potential to do this aged 22, 23. Do you want to, do you want to take this to the next level and commit your life to it? I could make that decision. I just don't think I would have been able to handle that as a teenager. I mean, I was a very um, conscientious student and, um, you know, I mean, I remember I, I kind of was practicing music instruments and I remember at that point thinking, well, I, I, I was reasonably serious. I don't mind doing it before school, but I don't really want to do it kind of before school and after school. Mm. I'm just not ready for that yet. Um, and so I often think, gosh, I could easily have, have turned down and thought, well, I don't want to do it at that level if I'd been pushed at that point. And yet, you know, by my 20s, I was ready to say, okay, let's give this a go. So I think there are lots of reasons why, you know, we, we can, can potentially lose people from sport at any level by pushing things too soon, too quickly, always thinking about that next, that next race, mm-hmm. the next level, and also not understanding that our bodies don't improve in a straight line and yeah. that our development can come with huge plateaus, mm-hmm. with huge ups and downs, um, but the danger is we lose people out during the downs or the plateaus because we think, oh, they're not improving anymore. It's actually they're just growing or they're just emotionally not ready to push on to the next level. So again, I think we really need to take a step back from um, from from how we push people too much, um, you know, at, at so many different points. Were you when you were at school? Were you quite active then in many different sports? No, I was actually very inactive in really? sports. Oh. I, I didn't come from a very sporty family. So I think one of the reasons I wasn't very good at sports school is I didn't have a good base fitness, if you yeah. like. And in fact, I can remember somebody sort of asking me if I was asthmatic as I tried to run around the, around the pitch. And I wasn't. I was just incredibly unfit. Um, it just wasn't something that my family was into. So we didn't spend our weekends um, kind of running around parks and things. Um, but, you know, we did have other interests. I'll say music was quite a 
big, big thing growing up, but I didn't do a lot of sports. And so again, I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the coordination. I was quite tall. So perhaps also a little bit clumsy as a teenager. And then if I dropped the ball in volleyball or missed it, I felt, uh, you know, unconfident. I wasn't in an environment that, that gave me a sense of just have another go. Sort of, you're not very good at this. And I kind of opted out almost from sport because I felt mm. I'm no good at this. You know, and on the hockey pitch, I ran away from the ball <laughs> because that seemed to be the best option. Yes. And it really hit when it hit, when it hurt, you know, if it hit your ankles, it really hurt. Um, and so, you know, again, I almost had that sort of walking away, you know, tr- trying to trying to get away from it because I felt it wasn't for me. Um, and so when I then had this opportunity that I was very reluctant to, to step into a boat because it didn't seem like a sensible thing to do with my background and experience. Um, but when I did, I just loved that opting in because when you're in a rowing boat, you can't opt out. You literally can't get out. It's really difficult. So then, you know, I just almost had that freedom of not even worrying about that. And just, I've just got to get on with it. I've just got to do the best I can. I can't stop because there's somebody coming up the, you know, the, in the seat behind me. So they're all will hit me in the back if I don't move <laughs> forward. And, and you just get on with it. And that was a lovely kind of moment of thinking, do you know what? You just got to take a stroke. It might be a terrible one, but you just take one and see what you can do and then see if you can make the next one better. And so it enabled me to be part of a team and to opt into something uh, and, and make the best of it, thinking about myself and people around me, that individual and collective piece at the, at the same time and, of course, the environment that you're in, the water, the weather. Um, and that was just such a lovely introduction then into sport that I just hadn't had. You talk about the teamwork then being in the boat almost sort of being committed and locked in and uh, but do you one of the things that I think I've missed over the last few months certainly we used to go swimming at 5am in the morning on a Saturday morning and, there, and it would be a two hour session and it, we used to call it survival Saturday but even, I mean it was a it was a seven o'clock start but then occasionally when there was a gala on we had to turn up at five and I would say that 60% of the people that came at seven committed to turn up at five, which meant getting up at 4am on a Saturday morning to go and do two hours swimming, which just used to feel like punishment. And for me, the thing that I enjoyed about that was the was still the camaraderie. And again, when you're in a swim lane and you're in the middle and the, and the coach says, go, you're following somebody else's feet and the next person is ready to go behind you. So a bit like rowing, if you don't go, it upsets everything because somebody's pushing you forwards. Go on, you go like lemmings going off a cliff. And um, now we're back into swimming individually. So, uh, you know, I'm going swimming when we finish this podcast, but there's nobody pushing me now. There's no group camaraderie. I'm going on my own. So is that what what else you found attractive about the rowing is then is that it was a shared, there was a shared suffering, um, whether it was because it was cold and rainy, whether it was because it was a hard session. You were all in it together. You'd all done the same workout. You'd all rowed on the river and watched the sunset come up. So there were, there were lots of things that you shared and experienced. Hugely, uh, and 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 I think you you're literally in the same boat. So you 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 know maybe in in that swimming situation, I'd have dropped out the lane. I'd have thought, oh, I can't do this on my own. I'm not good enough. I can't keep up. Whereas I just didn't have that option, mm. and it enabled me then to yes be part of something. And, and that was just the most wonderful experience. Um, we again had quite a few early mornings. I mean, I initially thought I don't, don't really fancy this because I don't really want to get up early as a student. Mm. That's not what coming to university was, was intended to be about. 
but actually there was a huge camaraderie getting on your bikes early in the morning clattering down to the river and it's dark and uh and it's actually very beautiful as the sun comes up and you've got a mist over the river so yeah that becomes a huge part of the shared experience something i hadn't done before something that was new and different and exciting uh and and that you you actually have to help each other um because you're in the same boat you need each other so the interdependence is really clear um, and I think that took it to that next level. I just can't, we can't go anywhere without each other. So it doesn't matter how, how good or bad we are. That, that, that's irrelevant. We need each other. We've got no other option. Um, how can we then work better together? So obviously you did get better because we know the end, the end story. But as you were progressing through um, performance levels, did you notice that there was a change in that sort of sociability shared experience to the performance ethic? And at what point did you notice that? And when did you start to feel uncomfortable with that? So the big change was um, after university starting to get into, starting to go through the trials process to get into the British team, getting closer to that. Within the university, I was really lucky that I had different levels I could get to. So going from just a novice crew into a college crew into a university crew. And there was a, there was a big change of seriousness, in, you know, just hours required. Um, but I suppose it still was, it still involved, it was still quite fun, at, at, you know, at its heart. It was still about, let's see what's possible. Um, and, and the culture was still pretty challenging, but supportive. Uh, I felt the the big shift came trying to get into the British team and then when it, when then being part of the British team where there was this much much stronger sense of it's all about winning we had to talk about winning all the time uh, do you want to win have you got the will to win have you got it to what it takes to win uh, are you tough enough are you um, you know you're going to be miserable when you lose because that's what winners do um, you're not here. You're not here just to lose. That's not good enough. There was all of that mantra, that kind of what I see as quite a macho narrative that still hangs around quite a lot of sport and other elements of our life. Um, you know that that really got to another level when I started getting involved um, in in the Olympic team. Mm. But you still went on, and uh, you you did well you made it to the olympics now you know i've i've never been anywhere near olympic selection i've never been anywhere near the top of my um age group in triathlon i, I used to win at school when i was in junior school i would win all the races on sports day i would play in the f- football team then i went to a um, a private school and it was all about academia or sport if you were talented at both and did well at both you were in school assembly at the front with the headmaster every Monday getting some sort of presentation. If you were good at academic, they could forgive your lack of sporting skills. And if you were good at sport, you sort of, they could forget your academic skills. If you didn't excel at academic, the academic stuff and you weren't in the first team, you were one of those losers that you mentioned in your book, as in losers in inverted commas, which uh, when I, when I think about it now, it sort of rankles with me and fills me with a little bit of amusement, <laughs> but you made it to the Olympics. And in my mind, uh, and I know a few Olympians, um, I know a few medalists, and that, that to me is like, wow, you've made it to the Olympics. Uh, just like I would put that person on a pedestal because of, you know, particularly when I was younger, that likes, to me, marks that, that individual out as a superhuman because they've done it. And I, when I was younger, I had no idea of the sacrifice, the things that you've described or some of the other stuff that we haven't talked about yet that's in your book. 
um, I just saw these people as superhumans and then watching the Olympic Games. And like like most other people, like people in your book, I would go, yeah, that guy's won. Who came second? Oh, I don't know. Who's bothered about them? Um, yeah. And now I've read your book and now I know more about the inside stuff. I have a slightly different view about it. I mean, I'll still watch the Olympic Games because I love, you know, some of the amazing mm. performances. But equally, I can remember Mark Jenkins. I don't, do you remember Mark Jenkins? Mm, in yeah, Athens? I do. Yeah. You, you might have, yeah, actually, yeah. you were in Athens, weren't you? So yeah. Mark famously ran around the bike course with his bike on his shoulder to, to get to the end of the, sec- the, the bike leg so that he could do the run because he didn't want to, to not finish the race. And by then it was, and, and that, that got a huge amount of publicity because of that sort of uh, outstanding mm. effort. But, um, mm. you know, or Derek Redmond, I mean, there are some, yes. there are some things that still stay with us, aren't there? That, that aren't all yeah. about winning the gold medal or setting a world record. But, but still, t- it, tell us about your experiences of the Olympics and about the whole process. Because to me, just getting selected must be like, I've made it now. I'm there. I'm a, I'm a champion. Uh, well, it's really, that's just the beginning. Yeah, that's just the beginning. Once you're inside that world, then it's all about winning. Well, it started off like that. I mean, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing is, well, when I first joined and that, that kind of winning narrative was very strong, I just thought, oh, okay, this is what I've got to learn. Um, and I, it was a bit uncomfortable, but I thought, well, that's, either that's because I'm, I'm not good enough to be here and I shouldn't be here, or if I want to be successful here, this is what I've got to learn. So I didn't really question it. And I, and I kind of got my head down and tried to just get on with being the toughest, the strongest, the, the meanest, um, the most miserable when you lost, etc. And, you know, I, I, I literally sort of spent a lot of time, a lot of effort doing that. I mean, when I look back, I, I, I wish I hadn't had to do that because in a, all of the time I was I was putting effort into that I wasn't really putting effort into going faster in the boat into exploring other ways of uh, you know of, of improving my technique or actually recovering um, you know discussing how we worked as a team we were just sort of quite quite narrow in in that focus um, but I think it was you know opening up a, a whole different world if you like about thinking. Um, once you're selected, it's then, are you going to win or not? Rowing has a massive tradition of success. Uh, it's won gold medals at every Olympics going back, um, certainly in all of our, our living memory now, um, you know, back to um, sort of 1980, uh, well, no, 84 was, was Red Race's first one, wasn't it? And but going back, you know, many years ago, uh, sort of to the to the 1948 London Olympics and and beyond, you know, it has a, a, a an incredible mm. um, history of success. And and so I think that's that's part of, if you like, the um, the culture that had grown from that. That this is this is what we expect. This is what we're about. Uh, and I think you know, Steve Redgrave brilliantly and inspirationally, uh, you know, raised the bar on what was possible. Um, you know, which was all really, really positive. Uh, but, but I guess it then just gets taken to a, gets taken to an obsessive level where, um, you know, it, 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 it's only about winning uh, and that somehow we exclude and we start to kind of devalue people if they don't win. So I agree, we should, I'm absolutely not suggesting we don't try and do our best and aiming to win is a really, really positive thing. So I am absolutely not against that. But I am against uh, this this world where if you don't win, you are treated as a as a lesser being. You are worthless. 
and and that's what it was like in, in when you went to a regattas when you got on the plane and you went there you were all part of a team and on the way back you know there were, there were winners who were treated differently from the people who'd lost in their races and and that's where it starts to become a really different experience where you're defined by your result your your worth as a human being and that's a really dangerous place to be i was interested in your paragraph in the book about what happens when you come back from the olympics that the, the gold medalists are, are given a, a seat in first class you know british airways puts on a, a on a plane for everybody to come back the gold medalists are in first class and then people who uh, you know whatever success you've had is then graded by your seat so i guess silver's in business and bronze is in premium economy and then those who just participated <laughs> Um, have to sit at the back but even then you know I, I can remember those photographs of the gold medalists all on the front steps and the rest of you have to almost I suppose if you'd if they'd had a screen for you to walk behind so you could shuffle off to in ignominy then that would have been better wouldn't it rather than having to be on full display of all the medal winners but but still ignored I know so that what, what we lack is a second photograph whilst people are photographing that front staircase with all the medalists on if you had a photographer sort of standing you know a few meters behind that you'd see the whole plane and mm. you'd see the back staircase with all the athletes coming off you know head down almost mm. seeing seeing the attention walking behind the photographers taking pictures of the medalists feeling you know yeah embarrassed ashamed that's the language that you hear um, for people who've gone and given their best and who knows what's happened to them. And that's the thing. We lose some brilliant stories. The people, though, have had incredible injuries and just getting to the Olympics was an amazing thing. They had, you know, luck plays a role. Balls hit crossbars. Referees make, you know, crazy decisions. You know, it's a, a fraction of a second that determines whether somebody falls over or, or you know, loses their balance or not. Um, and yet there's that sense that you're worth less uh, and, and you sort of skulk off somehow. So, you know, that to me is also not not the essence of sport, not the essence of team sport. What happened? We call ourselves Team GB, but what happened to that ethos of we win as a team, we lose as a team? Oh, no, suddenly we've we've lost sight of that. And I mean, I actually think they're, they're not going to do that anymore because they've realized that that's not what sports should be about. Uh, and we shouldn't be devaluing people who've done brilliant performances. The Olympics is set up in a way that you cannot have everybody winning. Um, so we need to think about what's the experience we create. And yet in order to have those winners, we need everyone else in the race. Mm. The well, brilliance comes from those moments of tactics and decisions that everybody in the race contributes to. Well, and also you need everybody else in the squad, don't you? You know, if um, yes. I mean, it's the same as if you're in the. Everybody remembers the England rugby uh, winning fifteen or the, uh, the the eleven who hoisted the World Cup in 1966. Who can remember the substitutes? So I mean, look at Jimmy Greaves. Jimmy Greaves didn't play in the final. He was probably the best striker we had then. I think it was either Martin Peters or Jeff Hurst who got the chance because Greaves was. Um, I think he was injured. So he couldn't play, but he was the best striker in Britain at that time. But he's not remembered as one of the World Cup winners, um, just by like you've just mentioned by some some sort of fluke, you know. Um, I think was it Roy Keane never got to play in the European Cup final for for uh, Manchester United, even though he was a pivotal part of that um, thing in the whole season because the referees did he get a second booking in the semi final or something? So he missed out on the missed out on the final. So those those are the flukes that you talk about that that uh, are the difference between being remembered 
um, as a great and sort of perhaps been forgotten. Well, it won't, those guys will never be forgotten about, but they're not quite remembered on the same level, are they? And, and I also, think they have. I think they have a lovely story. Just to just come in on that. I mean, yeah. actually, it's quite nice that you remember them because I think you know we all go through life and we have those experiences of not mm-hmm. being the person who gets the prize, the promotion, whatever it might be. And that's actually a really normal human experience. It's not yeah. a sign that you're worthless. It's not a sign of failure. It's just a sign of what happened that you had no control over. So it's our interpretation of those events, the stories that we tell, where I think we have a choice to tell some different stories. I think there are more stories that come out of the Olympics than just the winners that we can relate to, that we can learn something from, that we can connect to. But by actually only telling, really focusing so largely on just the winners, mm. you know, I think we put people off from sport who think, well, I can't connect with that person because they're so superhuman and they seem so amazing. But like, you know, this isn't for me. And we put a lot of people off sport, either mm. watching it and doing it, because there's a sense of, I, I just, I'm not going to be that person. So it's got nothing for me. And that's actually not the full picture of what sport is about. It's, it's always interesting to me because probably like you, I've I've met a lot of um, world champions and Olympic medalists, and I've introduced them to some of my friends if we've been at a dinner, and I'm like, oh, this is uh, this is Alistair Brownlee here. You know, Alistair's from Yorkshire. I've known Alistair since he was 12. Oh, Alistair always. And then afterwards, I say, can't believe it. He's such a normal bloke. Well, actually, he is a normal bloke. He's just extraordinarily good at triathlon. You know, or. Um, that Daley Thompson, I did an interview with Daley Thompson once. What a nice chap. But, um, you know, we can all remember the, just just everything about Daley, can't we? I mean, I do, because he was, he was that era when I was growing up and watching sport. But he's just a normal chap. My brother knew David Beckham when he was uh, first in Manchester, because he, he, Beckham used to go out with my brother's flatmate. And uh, he said, yeah, we used to sit there having a cup of tea and talking about, uh, you know, all sorts of things, like he was a normal chap. Um yeah, and I think we, we lose sight of that, don't we? That they are yeah. just normal people with extraordinary talents and work ethics. But Absolutely. And uh, I mean, you mentioned Daley Thompson. I think, you know, I write about him in the book. I think he's a really interesting example because um, he's someone who had, uh, he's just I mean, a phenomenal athlete, but he had this attitude of fun to everything that he did. Mm. You know, and he had his crazy T-shirts. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, he was able to have fun on his third discus throw after two no throws you know, really looking down the barrel of a gun. And and that's actually what his talent was. That was the uniqueness that he was able to enjoy performance. That's what gave him such joy in the sport that, you know, gave him longevity, but also means he still likes to go down to the track and train with friends, you know, now to this day, Mm. because he loved the sport. And yet, actually, he was judged negatively for that. He was seen not to have taken it seriously enough. Mm. But in fact, that was the essence of his you know, incredible ability to perform under pressure was Mm -hmm. he loved it. He enjoyed it. He was happy to go and still try and do a PB in your third discus throw when, you know, when the first two haven't, haven't landed, you know, that, that, if anything was something to be admired, but we judged it because we had this lens of he's not serious enough. He's not serious enough on the podium. Um, you know, with his sort of whistling along, Oh my God, he's having fun. That's what sports actually about. Uh, and I, I think it's a really, it's a real example of, I, you know, I think often we haven't, you know, he, he is brought in now to commentate on the BBC. Um, but for years he wasn't. For years he was on the outside of things when he was one of the most inspirational athletes that we've ever had. Mm. Talking about the win at all costs. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the initial Olympics motto, was it? And I was interested in your book. You, you define both winning and sport and neither of those were about 
just celebrating the winners, were they? Originally, they've been sort of corrupted over time. They have, absolutely. Uh, so, yes, winning comes from the original meaning of the word is about uh, uh, effort, striving, kind of working hard, not an outcome, just actually what you put into it. And it's related to words, gawin and wunia, which means joy. So it's a mixture of effort and joy. It's not about something happening at the end of you know a, a, an outcome. Um, competition comes from competere, which is about striving together, not defeating somebody else, destroying them, smashing them. Um, again, striving together with somebody else, competing with someone. Uh, and sport was, was really about leisure uh, and sort of comfort and entertainment. And so we've created uh, this, this uh, much more um, you know, military approach, if you like, from years of seeing winning as being about, you know, winning and losing on the battlefield, dying or, you know, or, or surviving. The winner who takes the spoils, who gets everything, uh, and the loser who is, you know, destroyed and, and you know, ha- has nothing left. This sort of binary understanding of what winning means. Just, has just written developed. the word binary. <laughs> as you yeah. Said. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's really unhealthy because that's, that's not what sport was invented for. And for me, it's not the bigger power of sport, uh, the bigger opportunity it has to connect us, to connect communities, whether we're at grassroots or elite level. And actually for athletes to get it, it joy, whether they win or lose, it's about how connected they feel to people around them, to their squads, to their communities, to, uh, to, to their spectators, if you like. That's what brings the joy on the podium, not, not mm. actually the, the colour of the medal. Well, you you mentioned outcome there and something that I've been keen to emphasize to the triathletes and endurance athletes that I work with over the last few years is about mastering the process. I mean, you talked about um, when you were rowing, focusing more on winning rather than improving your technique or um, on your nutrition or recovery, all of which are still part of the process of being the best you can be. I, uh, I, I, I had a podcast call with Mandy Hickson, the fighter pilot, um, recently, and Mandy was great. And she talked about being the best that you can be on every day. How can I get better? Um, I mean, flipping heck, when you're flying a jet aircraft at, uh, at you know, the speed of sound, you need to be a master of the process, don't you? Because there there's only two outcomes, either you land, and if you get it wrong, you don't. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, that is, that is pretty binary. Um, that was a big shift for me, the performance thinking in my final Olympics, that when sports psychology came in and uh, we had a, a, an excellent sports psychologist, Chris Shambrook, who started helping us to shift away from that obsession and a future outcome towards my performance. What are all the things I'm going to improve today from yesterday? So I don't know if I'm going to win or not. I still want to win. It hasn't changed. But today I'm not going to win. No medal is given out today. But what matters today is how much I improve. And, you know, the aim, my job is just to maximize my improvement and I'll get whatever result I get because I can't control the result. It's going to depend on my competitors, all sorts of things I can't control. You know, maybe weather, maybe referees, depending on your sport, um, you know, maybe whether I'm injured and, and in 2020 and 2021, whether the event's actually happening or not. All sorts of uncontrollables will determine the result. But what I can control is my performance, my best performance, developing that with no ceiling on it. And so, you know, that I don't aim to become world-class at winning. I aim to become world-class at improving because that's the way to optimize how much and how often I can win. And that is a really important shift in language because 
actually we trained the same as we did before. We did the same number of hours. We even got timed. Everything was timed the same way. But the conversation at the end of the day shifted. So in the, in the kind of old mindset, there'd be a ranking on the wall all the time. So they'd be like, you've won today or your top of the rank is great. Do it tomorrow. And I'd be terrified. I'd go home thinking, oh my God, I can't go any harder. I'm so exhausted. What, what, what am I going to do? And what if somebody else overtakes me? Or if I was at the bottom of the rankings, then the coaches would be saying, it's not good enough. You've got to do more. You better do tom- better tomorrow. And I'd be thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm exhausted. I can't give anymore. How, you know, what, what happens? Am I about to, to, to kind of get binned off the bottom? And that was a real experience of fear, exhaustion, draining. I mean, it was a real battle just to keep going through that. So it developed a toughness, but it didn't optimize our performance. The same thing then in this performance thinking in the final Olympia. So we trained as hard. We we're still timed. And actually, the times are still on the wall. But the conversation at the end of the day was very different. This time, it was like, right, these are the things we're doing well today. So let's keep building on those. These are the things we want to improve. This is what we're going to try and do differently tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So each time, whether I'm at the top of the list or the bottom of the list, it doesn't matter. We're just trying to improve. And we're doing some things well. And we're doing some things that we need to, to start to work on, mm-hmm. regardless of whether we are the fastest in the world or the slowest at that point. And you go home and having had a complete, it's a completely different experience. You're looking forward to the next day. You're looking forward to seeing how you can improve and working with others around you to do that. Learning from others who are doing an aspect of technique better than you, but they may be faster or slower. It doesn't matter. You may still be going slower. You may still be going faster than them, but they do an aspect of that technique, how their oars enter the water better than you. So you're going to learn that from them and work with them tomorrow and they'll learn something else from you. And that optimizes everybody's improvement because we just don't know how quickly we're going to improve so we don't know who's going to be fastest when we get selected in three months time so there's no 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 point worrying about that all we can do is optimize our improvement heading up to that point and it it just feels completely different when you when you go home after exactly the same day's training Mm. it's a different experience it it sometimes feels to me when i work with recreational athletes um, by that, I'm talking about people who, who train hard, but they're not. This is their hobby. They've got another means of, of income. That that this whole idea of performance sport has been corrupted as well with those, and that's a lot of that's through marketing and sort of hearsay. And again, perhaps a militaristic approach brought in by coaches who've been in the military. And obviously, when you've got recruits who are there, you know, and they're being paid, you can tell them, get on, the, do that, laddie, or, you know, you're, there's a punishment. Whereas it's different when you're coaching a group of adults in, in a swimming pool. Um, but I, I see a focus on the outcome for every session. You know, was I fasting yesterday? Was I fasting last week? Was I better than that person? Um, even though everybody develops at the same rate, they're all training for different races. So they may be at different points in the program. And I, Again, when I was reading the book, I made a I made a note about Strava and how Strava has king of the mountains and rankings for every single ride. There's a, there's somebody who's been the best, been the fastest. You've got a, you know, you've got a um, a personal best on this particular thing. And I wonder how much, you know, as much as Strava's great and it's and it's this whole sort of online community, it can also be quite destructive as well. Um, because of the sort of because of the rankings and you know I, I know somebody I know had a malfunction with their Garmin right this is how ridiculous it is that the Garmin measured them over a period of a hundred meters having covered that distance on a run in seven seconds right I mean Usain yeah. Bolt would have been writing to you congratulating you on that and so 
this individual was then elevated to the top of the rankings for that time. And somebody who they didn't know took the trouble to seek out their email address or write to them via Strava saying, oh, I just wanted to correct you about that time today. It seems like you've covered this time in seven seconds and it now makes you king of the mountains, which means that my time has been shoveled down because of that. Honestly, the person involved didn't even know about that time because it was one small section of a 10 kilometer run but the fact that somebody would reach out just shows how sort of far and how ridiculous this has become so it, it's playing to uh that sort of short-termist addictive part yeah. of our brains and that's why it's really really effective and lots of technology plays to that lots yeah. of you know lo- lots of the ways our phones are constructed mm. play to that I don't know if you'd seen the the social dilemma the the We've netflix talking about but talking yeah. about that with somebody else this morning yeah yeah uh you know that the, that that's what we're playing to we're playing to the kind of the next hit the next yeah the, the, the next hit, ranking yeah. you're gonna get the next, um, you know, little smiley face you get for hitting the target that you were mm. set for doing five days in a row for being king of this, king of that. Um, there's, there's lots of things that, that are playing to that. The, the danger is, of course, that that's, that's short-termist, it's shallow. Uh, it doesn't help us thrive over the longer term. And it can actually hold us back from investing in things where, do you know what, we might need to go slower for a bit in mm. order to then go faster in due course. And in that first period of my um, kind of Olympic career, we were so desperately trying to beat each other every day that we didn't take a step back and make technical improvements that would have taken us months to do in order to go faster in the longer term. So when we then came to race against the rest of the world, hey, Presto, we weren't fast enough. Couldn't have trained any harder. Mm. But we hadn't been able to make changes that on a daily basis would have meant we went short term slower, but who cares how fast you're going in February? So there's a real danger that you also, you're on the road to burnout by doing that. You're not able to kind of accept the uh, the need for recovery at different rates to kind of listen and to think about that longer term development. So athlete retention in careers is a big issue that UK sport are now discussing and um talking to to performance directors about you know athletes who could do more than one um olympics are choosing not to because they haven't had the experience that they want to repeat or actually we're also pushing them of course to compete on injuries and pushing them back too quickly mm. which of course is another recipe for having a shorter career i mean we all like to see winners don't we and again for those of us who've never been on the top of the podium you think about how brilliant it must be to get all that adulation to stand there to have the national anthem played in your honour to see your flag raised um, and then stand there with all the photographs and maybe get the photograph with your medal biting it and, you know, being on the front of the sun or whatever. But but that's the only bit we see. We don't see the bit afterwards and it's not all um, sunshine, is it? Actually, it seems from reading your book and talking to some other people that that victory can actually bring a great deal of sadness and disappointment and emptiness, which would be surprising probably for many listeners. That's what's so extraordinary. And that that's what really drove me to write the book is that this isn't just about me saying, Oh, I came, I came second at the Olympics and, uh, you know, and, and, um, gosh, that's, 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 you know, disappointing. Uh, this is about thinking, well, hang on a minute. I've just spoken to people who've won and they're not happy either. Oh my goodness. There's this sense that if you win, yeah, we're, we're held up, aren't we? This, what, what really can be a myth that if you win, you'll have lifelong happiness. Um, it will fulfill everything you ever wanted, but 
actually you're the same person after the race as before the race and the things that weren't right in your life before the race, do you know what? They're still not right. Um, and, and we tell stories up to the point of the podium and yet we for some reason don't tell what happens after the podium which is probably the most important thing what does that medal mean for the rest of your life that's when it it has meaning and yet of course we don't allow people to plan for the rest of their lives to have any life outside of sport they crash there is there is that sense of what now and that's one of the most common phrases i think you hear from winners are sort of oh is that it I can remember being told by coaches, don't, don't enjoy yourself till you get to the top of the podium. That's when you enjoy yourself. That's such a dangerous approach because when you get there, suddenly you go, right, now everything's supposed to be a party forever. Well, it doesn't look like that. And we have, this isn't a new phenomenon. Mark Spitz talked uh, about, I mean, he never really was able to create a life after his incredible performance of seven gold Olympics in Munich in 72. And he could, when he realized that this wasn't going to create everlasting happiness, he just couldn't ever really get his head around that. Um, so w- what we set up by only talking about the winners and by having this sort of moment of, of huge glory and making it heroic, superhuman, doesn't help either the person involved. Or, and, and it you know, misguides us watching what we think we're watching. Uh, so, you know, I, I really think we need to look at the stories of what happens afterwards. I often compare it to the analogy of um, climbing Everest, where more people die on the way down mm-hmm. than on the way up because everybody plans the way up uh, and then they don't plan the way down and people die. And you think, well, that's not really, to, to me, I'm thinking that's not success. I mean, that's a hugely kind of incredible macho world of toughness. I'm also thinking, well, that doesn't look a good plan to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I'd quite like to know what, I'd quite like to plan the way down. And, and I think we have that similar thing. It's all about up to this peak. And then there's a, a kind of a big crash and we seem to not value or, or mind that. But in my mind, that's a cost that isn't okay. Mm-hmm. When the BBC did some research for years, ago nearly 50% of athletes are leaving sport with mental health issues we've seen the really awful appalling stories of experiences that gymnasts have had over over a huge period of time in British gymnastics but also around the world that's not okay where you have Amy Tinkler who won that incredible bronze medal in Rio saying I'd actually hand my medal back if I could change those experiences I've had that's not success, is it? That's not something that we're going to inspire the next generation with. It's not healthy for sports, not healthy for society. So all of the potential that sport has to be a role model to inspire us to explore what's possible, it's not doing it in those situations. Moving away from sport for a moment, you finished your career as an athlete and then you went on to be a diplomat, which is uh, yeah, the first diplomat we've ever had on the podcast. So not that we're creating rankings, of course. <laughs> but, so what? But from reading your book again, I understand that the diplomatic world wasn't too different to the sporting world. Where, um, and actually, reading your book caused me to think about the statement last week from the Taliban. Now that America were withdrawing their forces on September the 11th, and the Taliban was saying, "We've won the war, not the Americans." I'm like, well, how does that help long-term diplomacy? Now, um, surely you're all trying to come out of this grasping onto something positive. Uh, so, I, yeah, I love your, your thinking there because you highlight that there's that zero-sum game thinking often in, um, I mean, in business and in politics. 
And when we're in that world, and a lot of a lot of history has sort of pushed us into that direction, um, then we get very binary outcomes. One side wins, one side loses. That generally means the outcome doesn't last because the losing side then just goes and sort of, you know, rearms itself in some way in order to come back and have another fight and try and win the battle. And and, and actually we, we limit what's possible. So a lot of the work that I did in diplomatic negotiations was uh, really around mindsets. If we're in a zero-sum game mindset, then we're not going to get an outcome that's going to move the situation forward, the country, the stability we're looking for, the reforms we're looking for, the prosperity that we're trying to create. And I was working a lot of the time in, in conflict affected places. So that those were the sort of big picture aims that we were trying to get. The key is to move to a psychological perspective where we realize that if we are one part of something much bigger so we don't get everything we want, but we all get something. Then, mm-hmm. we are, then we actually end up more than even if we're the winner of a binary outcome, which is temporary. Uh, that, that's what a lot of our work was about. So how do we view what does success look like? If I'm defining success as, as my opponent getting nothing that he wants, then, then we're going nowhere with this negotiation. Um, and so it was a really different picture of, um, the, a different lens, if you like, on what winning is about and how if we frame it narrowly, if we frame, frame it in a, in a binary way, short term, it, it doesn't move us forward. It holds us back. And yet it's still surrounded by all of this macho narrative, all of this strength and power that comes with winning. And we want to be the winner. All of that kind of historical language, if you like, around winning is there. It's very prevalent and it, and it obfuscates this area of thinking, well, actually that isn't going to get you further on. You might feel you're the winner and you can point to somebody who's, who's a loser, but in terms of what you've gained for your country, for, how, for, the, for the wealth mm. of the country, for the prosperity, you, you've not actually moved it forward. You've set yourselves back. So I absolutely, that's this theme of has kept recurring in my life. And of course, I see it now as a parent involved in education. And that's really, again, it was the fact it comes across society. that I thought we really need to look at, at how this is, is recurring and, and holding us back. I mean, you talk about uh, who wins and who loses. I often thought that if you look at the Second World War, we all decided, the victors, of course, all decided that Germany must submit to all of this and do as they're told. But yeah, if you look at the way, in general, German society, German economy and everything has, um, has changed since the 1940s, you might wonder who ended up winning in the long term out of all that. Same with Japan. I mean, that has frequently been the case. I mean, arguably, the end of the, the, what the winners did in the First World War set up the Second World War. So the way they treated Germany there, mm. um, you know, in the Treaty of Versailles, where it was all about make the Germans pay, uh, you know, a lot of that really set, set in train many of the, the dynamics that, that then created the Second World War. So I think that's, we've seen that repeat itself time and time again, um, where who's gaining? Who's won? What have you won? So... You mentioned education there. I was really saddened to read, but I don't have children, so it's not an experience I've been through, although I have listened to um, my friends who were parents um, probably relating similar stories. But I was saddened to read the story about the parent of a a a two-and-a-half-year-old who was distraught that she couldn't get him to hold a pencil correctly. 
And I mean, who knew there was a way of holding a pencil correctly anyway, but she couldn't get him to hold a pencil correctly. And therefore she'd created this train of events, which would lead to him having a disastrous life because he wouldn't get into all of those schools that she or her and her husband decided were the, were the steps needed for him to become, um, uh, you know, a leading investment banker or um, QC. <laughs> just yeah. absolutely tragic that you've already defined your child's pathway yeah. from the age of two. How is that possible? It's very, it's very real. It's very real. Um, it's certainly not, not, not one off. Uh, and there will be tutors who exist to help that early <laughs> pencil positioning. Um, yeah, it's a madness. But of course, that is what the system has created. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of the ways that um, organisations work will favour people who've got those CVs. Um, the CVs only really tell you about your access to good education, the advantages and privileges that you've had. They don't actually tell you about your potential or even your, your broader traits and characteristics. I mean, I've actually really loved hearing over the last week or two lots about the Duke of Edinburgh's award. Mm. Um, I think what he set up was very clever. I think it's a very good example of long wind thinking where, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's open to, to all. It's actually very valued by employers because they realise these things are important. And it picks up on a lot of things that in education are missing, uh, this ability mm-hmm. to develop resilience, creativity, um, you know, that, that ability to work with others, to push yourself, self-reliance, um, as well as collaboration. Uh, and, and it really is, you know, in my mind, something that, that plugs a gap. It's open to all um, who, people who traditionally are, are the losers, who've got maybe special needs or who aren't immediately academic or, you know, mm. find it hard to, to memorise information. All these people drop out of the system, even though they're perfect. They've got loads to offer. Um, and, and I really have loved hearing about that. So um, I mentioned earlier when I was at school, um, I played sport, but I wasn't in the first team. I My school reports always said Simon could do better. I I found one school report that said, if this was a sports academy, Simon would be one of our top pupils. Unfortunately, it's not, and neither is he, right? Now, those are the days when at least teachers could have a bit of humor about writing your school report, and um, it didn't have to be all politically correct. But I can remember a few years after I left school going back for for something, and, and oh, actually, no, meeting, meeting my former... F- former um form teacher who was now working in a in a, an organization i had to go negotiate with um to, to do some work to actually work with some olympic swimmers and i sat down with him and uh, he said well you've done quite well since you left school as if like you left with no chance at all of succeeding in society because you didn't bother trying and then we sat there and he said well what you're charging here is way more than we'd play our regular gym instructors and I said yes but these are people the the gym instructors that you're talking about are dealing with members of the public and you're employing me to work with people who you want to go to the Olympics to win medals so you know and I said so this is my rate and he said well um I'm not sure we can afford that I said well when we were at school if you you know um with all due respect one of the things that you used to talk about was negotiating your position from a point of strength so those are the skills you left with and now here you are trying to beat me down on price at which point he had to submit and <laughs> I won <laughs> which which I know isn't the, the concept of this conversation but at least it did leave me feeling that I'd learned something from being at school 
Yeah, good. And I mean, often I think the things we, we, we learn are the things we learn around the subjects, aren't they? In between the subjects. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, that there are lots of, that there, is a, there is a lot of research now around how we should be learning in much more cooperative ways, much more group work at school. But of course, we're still individually assessed in this country in, in the vast majority of learning. But the Nordic countries, actually quite yeah. a lot of the US schools, um, Holland, you know, other, other countries are moving much more to realising that we want to develop skills that are useful for life. Um, and those should be, you know, not just that, that happen to be learnt uh, by chance, but actually we could be developing those much more intentionally. And they're much more inclusive because those are also skills that, that, are, that are much broader, that can be done in different ways. Um, mm. So, you know, we're really behind the curve on a lot of that. And that then sets us up in a way that we aren't able to manage the workplace very well or we aren't made in, able to, to manage sport in, in the best way. Sport still remains probably one of the best ways of, that we learn these lessons in life, that we learn about how to manage pressure, work in a team, deal with failure. Um, and, and that's probably one of the most uh, sort of important aspects that it offers in, in schools. But you know, that could be brought out so much more. I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit because we, we hear about occasionally people get some prominent coverage in the press because they're suggesting that we shouldn't have this competitive ethic in schools and it should all be about you know trying to elevate everybody almost a rising tide lifts all boats and then somebody else will come on and say ah yes but you know life isn't like that you know life's about winners and losers and we need to set people up so that they understand the the the, um what defeat means and that it's not the end of the world and so they can deal with it and so if we don't teach them this sort of resilience at school but of course um Whilst we talk about war situations where, you know, the outcome is often binary or if you're playing in sports where it is mano-mano, so, you know, tennis matches, you know, boxing where you've got just two competitors and there's generally got to be a winner and a loser. But but most of life is actually about finding comparative advantage, isn't it? You know, if you're a diplomat and I'm a great coach, then we find a way of make, of working together so that we can both benefit out of that rather than me trying to be a diplomat and you trying to be a coach. And actually, if you can find everybody's best skills and then work together, everybody wins. And but we know we don't teach that. So I, I again, we we often see competition as a binary thing. Either you're competitive or you're not. And what I'm arguing for is to be competitive in a different way, if you like, to redefine what competition means, to enable us actually to explore our potential in a much better way, in a much in more inclusive way as well. If you look at the big challenges that face us in society, they are not win-lose issues, whether it's environmental change, whether it's social inequality, whether it's, you know, immigration, um, you know, all of these challenges require us to come up with, you know, complex and evolving solutions. There is no one person who's got the answer mm. to climate change. Um, and therefore, that requires us to be in a different mindset. Certainly, we can't sit on our laurels. We can't not bother. We need to be very competitive in terms of striving together to challenge each other, support each other and, and explore and experiment and work out how we can do this but not in a way that you're on that side, I'm on this side, I'm right, you're wrong. Let's prove which of us is right about climate change. That doesn't move us on at all. Mm. So it is very much, again, we have this sort of macho view that, you know, if you're not 
if you're not pro win at all costs, you must be pro giving everyone a medal. And there's nothing, there's no other way. And that was absolutely something I wanted to challenge. Mm. Yes, we can and we should be looking for ways to be competitive that actually enable us to get more out of ourselves, to challenge ourselves rather than just in a very narrow definition of what winning looks like, to think about actually what, what else could we do to explore what sport looks like. You know, again, we, we measure it in quite narrow ways sometimes. And I think we, you know, a certain talent isn't uh, given, you know, given a medal because that event doesn't happen and it immediately becomes devalued. Mm. Um, you know, and that seems crazy. I actually think some of the newer events coming in are, are much freer because they've, they've not been constrained by medals. So if you look at some of the winter sports that, that have come in um, and perhaps even with some of the sports coming into um, skateboarding and the like in, you know, in the summer sports, these, they have a really strong culture of experimentation, of taking risks, because success is about moving the sport on, not about winning a medal. And that, I think, is a great approach. That's what sport's about, exploring boundaries. Absolutely don't think we should say, you know, we're, we're, we're done on this and that isn't a good thing. But actually, the way we are going about it stops us from exploring the boundaries of what's possible sometimes. As I was reading your book, I was thinking about, uh, I think you make mention in um, one part about how winning and proving that you can win and proving you can be the best is a, is a, is often about self-esteem and sometimes people with lower self-esteem or lower self-worth seem to need to prove that they're winners in order to you know gain some value amongst their community and um, people who don't need to prove that they're winners enjoy the taking part actually seem to be much more rounded personality so then it started me it's something we've been talking about as tutors recently about narcissism and ego and self-esteem and all of that and there is a certain amount of this wrapped up in there isn't there about being a winner being seen to be a winner and then we talk we, we look about society and look all around us people driving big cars fast cars noisy cars people having big houses um talking of education i can remember a, a um a conversation with a personal training client of mine many years ago about one of their communities business was going under some of his peers were advising him well just take your children out of the private school and he refused even though he couldn't afford it because how would that look amongst the community uh, you know and so it's like well how who cares how it looks you haven't got the money to afford it you know we all know what you're about but he was so set on what other people think of him because his children have been removed and gone to the primary the local comprehensive that he continued paying the huge fees annually until such point as actually couldn't afford them and his, and his hand was forced which which so is a terribly right. sad terribly sad is, situation to be it? in isn't it to feel that success is externally imposed on you, what success looks like. You can't mm. define that to yourself, that there's some uh, measure of that, that someone else determines for you. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, then you're very powerless, aren't you? I mean, that must have been actually a really horrific situation for him to feel trapped into, to mm. feel that he had no choice at that point to define it for himself. Um, I mean, you mentioned the ego point ahead of that. I think that that's that that's what I see coming through a lot of the um, the banter. The, the are you a winner? Are you a loser? Thinking is is quite ego driven. But mm -hmm. we also see when 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 that's what's driving us in sport or in anything else in life, then the experience is often quite lacking, quite empty. That's when we get to the point of going, oh, is that it? 
because actually you're you know you're you're left the same person just with a slightly bigger ego that you've enlarged mm. and you often had don't have the people around you who would make it a much more meaningful journey because you haven't thought about that social responsibility of what you're doing you have such mm. a brilliant opportunity as a role model in sport if you're involved at the elite levels to have a huge impact on on others around you you know you can choose to just talk about how great you are well you know that kind of works short term but it doesn't it doesn't mean that they feel part of your journey or you can actually choose to sort of inspire them bring them into your sport mm. um you know think about new ways of attracting uh wider communities to access sport whatever it might be i mean obviously you've got marcus rashford who now is the the mm. kind of absolute hero in this in this world and I, and i love what he's doing um you know i think that that's that's what brings the bigger meaning to the journey and we can see that that's not harmful to performance at all so i do think that the ego piece again it narrows it narrows the experience we have that means we get to that point and maybe we get the medal or maybe we don't but actually what are we left with once once the cameras go away and we step off the podium? You you have children, Kath. I do. Have do two. they? Do they? And so, I'm interested reading the book as to how you've brought up your children and the lessons that you've been trying to instill in them, because they'll probably have you with your lessons and your life experiences from one side. But then, as much as you know, it's a noble thought that you can change the whole world and, and let's hope you can in some way, but it's still going to, it's still like turning an oil tank around. So whilst your children have your message from home, they're getting all of those other messages we've talked about still from school and from their own taking part in sport and probably from, you know, if it's the little junior football team, the coach saying, come on, we need to beat them. We need to destroy the opposition, you know, because they're, they're the under six champions and we need to prove that we're best. So definitely my experiences as a parent, you know, have also made me want to, to write the book to say, gosh, this is a really difficult world to navigate when uh, there are so many judgments coming back about who's in the top team and who's in the next team and, and, and all of that. Um, my son is is a big cricket lover at the moment. He's just nine. And, um, but I'm glad to say he's, he's happily uh, was announced that he was a member of the under 10s B team of his cricket team. And he was like, yeah, that's right. My mates in there. That's fine. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're looking forward Good. to some matches this summer. Um, and certainly we were kind of celebrating and saying, Oh, great. Yeah. I wonder who we're going to be playing and, and, and what fun we're going to have doing that uh, in the summer. So obviously I try that, but I'm really aware of the, yeah, the messages coming from around us all of the time. Um, and, and that's a, that's a huge challenge. I mean, my, my daughter actually has a uh, disability, has special needs, and that has given me another perspective okay. on, in some ways, she's enabled to do what's right for her. And in some ways, education takes an approach where actually, well, it doesn't make sense to try and do this. Let's focus focus on where, where she has got uh, capacity to do things. My son, no, he just has to, we just have to shovel everything down his mouth that everybody gets shoveled down. Um, so I think that's quite interesting that you get quite a different approach. Mm. Um, but ultimately, there's also that that limit put on, oh, well, yeah, you know, the, the, this child won't be any good at this or this child won't be any good at this, all of that judgment. So I see them both in really different scenarios facing, yeah, all of those judgments. Uh, and you're left thinking, gosh, how can I just help them to explore what they enjoy, their potential, what their capacity is, that actually none of us know what the answer to that is. So let, let's summarise um, 
our conversation then, Kath, if we can, by laying out a plan that we can all try to follow to help us sort of achieve success in the long term and maybe have a different definition of what success is. Um, uh, number one, of course, will be to buy your book, The Long Win, which we will um, put in the link of in the show notes. So, But let's, let's see if we can think of a few more as well. And of course, once people do buy your book, they'll be able to make up their own um, they'll be able to make up their own minds what's going to work for them. But let's give them some teasers on, on things that they can start to do straight away, both for themselves and those people around them. Sure. So the, the, three, the three C's, the three central tenets of um, long-wind thinking are about clarity or clarifying, if you like, what matters, constant learning mindset and, and connecting. So putting these things as measures of success, if you like. So clarifying broader success criteria beyond just an outcome. So think about, you know, success being how we go about something, not just whether I win or not, but how do I want to go about the pursuit of excellence? How do I want to go about working in the team? So if you like the process goals, um, thinking about the broader why that we're doing something and making sure it's not all defined by one moment in time, one result, crossing the line, one race, one mm. target, one actually to think, you know, today, what, what will make today successful in terms of what, how I turn up to things and also that longer term piece. What, what do I really care about? What I want to be part of um, making a difference in some small way in the community and in society. Constant learning is, is the key. I think that's the biggest one. Just we're always learning. We're always improving, whether we're the best in the world or the slowest in the world. It doesn't matter. We're just always improving. And that gives us a resilience that when results sometimes come away and sometimes don't come away, do you know what? We're still learning. Um, that, that's what gives us that opportunity to explore, to experiment, to not get stuck where we are. And, you know, even when we're on a plateau, we're learning about why we're on the plateau and what's happening and what else could we try? Mm-hmm. How, could, how might we vary things? How might we do something slightly different? So, you know, make sure that the, if you like success is about what have I learned today? What are things I've learned? And sometimes I'll have learned from failure and sometimes I've learned from, from, from something going well. Actually, what's really ma- important is the new thing I gained today that I take with me tomorrow. And the last factor of connecting. We can't succeed alone. So let's invest in the relationships. Let's really think about who's on the journey with us, how we can support, get to know them better, challenge them and have them support and challenge us. And put that first. Often people seem to organize lives around tasks, around things to do. We we organize our training program around all of the sessions we're going to do. But actually, an interesting way is to sort of flip that and think about, okay, who's important to this performance even in an individual sport that doesn't matter we still need lots of people supporting us competing with us training us advising us coaching you know allowing us to have fun or just switching off and getting away from it and and actually who do we want to have around us on this journey and how can we you know bring in the people we need in order to thrive in order to have the story to tell after the podium to have people to tell the story to and to have a story tell that involves others along the way wow Brilliant. I, I like to think, listening to that, that I'm I'm doing quite a lot of those. But of course, in in line with um, point two, there, constant learning. There's always a little bit more that we could do. There's always a, a, another approach we could take. You know, I, I like somebody asked me why I do the podcast because I don't I don't do adverts. I, I don't uh, charge for them, so it costs me money to produce these. And um, talking to somebody who's doing an MBA, I decided that this is my own personal MBA. The cost is uh, about the same, but I, I choose 
which people I'd like to talk to to learn about life. And then I, I invite them onto the show and have my own hour and a half of private time to pick up um, some of their lessons. And it just so happens that there's a few people that would like to share that with as well. So um, this this is my own constant learning and connectivity and, and actually clarifying what matters. It's meeting new people and learning new things. So Brilliant. I love yeah. that. It is the long win in practice. Absolutely. And, and you're defining it yourself. You're finding a way that works, that works for you, for how you learn, for how you want to learn in a way that's enjoyable. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely love that. But there's no certificate or the, I don't get anything to show how, how much of a winner I am at the end of it, though, Kath. <laughs> the good thing is you don't need it. No, I don't. <laughs> because and you know you don't need it no and, and that's the thing isn't it it's being comfortable in your own skin walking around um knowing that you're making a success out of life i mean you know look at the duke of edinburgh for, for all of his faults and whatever he got to 99 he was two months shy of 100 i mean that's a success of life isn't it you know um well he yeah he also had things that he believed in didn't he yes, he yeah, kind of he did, said i yeah. can make a difference here and 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 that for me was yeah the duke of edinburgh award scheme i think is such an interesting mm-hmm. uh, driven scheme program uh, yeah. that is about enabling people to thrive all sorts of people mm. and he lived life on his terms even down to the funeral he did what he wanted didn't he not what yeah not, not and, and let's face it when you're in the royal family sometimes um other things dictate how how events are going to happen not yourself that can be constrained indeed yeah kath bishop it's been an absolute pleasure today thank you so much for being on the show really appreciate your time Great to be here. Delighted to be part of your constant learning project on the podcast. No, and thank you for that. And uh, we'll make sure we put all your social media links and, and the links to the book into the show notes. Thanks again to Kath for joining me on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes. A reminder that if you are interested in being part of my SWAT Inner Circle, you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1 please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes. That's all for this week. We'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, please stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.